0: Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old-fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, we're going to do something a little different, rather than having one guest Uh, We're going to feature a conversation that a group of us had as part of Boulder's Startup Week this month. Uh, The question we're probing is, what makes tech inclusive? Now, uh, I'm just going to forego the normal introduction, and thanks so much for listening. Hello and welcome to Zebras Unite: Tools for Inclusive Tech at Boulder Startup Week. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm an assistant professor at, at CU Boulder and um, and uh, director of the Media Enterprise Design Lab. I'm really glad to welcome you all uh, to this discussion, and uh, as well as those who are listening later on on the radio and and on the internet. So. Uh, we're going to have a good discussion here. I'm sorry that we're not able to be uh, present in person. Um, we were originally hoping to have this event uh, at uh, uh, one of our speakers' spaces, Corey Cohn's um, uh, Dojo Four space, which is a really wonderful, intimate uh, office and and community space in downtown Boulder um, that you know would have reflected some of the values in. Uh, we'll be talking about in the the location but we'll do our best online in the context that we're in. Um, This is um, the second event that um, Corey and I have have been involved in putting together uh, that for Boulder Startup Week that's focused around this frame of Zebras Unite. Uh, This is a network of uh, founders of startup founders and people in the startup ecosystem uh, it was started and, and continues to be led largely by founders who are women and people of color. Um, and it stands for, um, you know, kind of in contrast to the mythology of the unicorn, uh, the vision of, of uh, the startup as um, this kind of lone and um, um, kind of semi-mythical creature uh, rather than being something real and something that lives in community and, and works in groups uh, that embraces contradiction and the black and white stripes of a zebra, um, and and more specifically too, the zebras unite group. Um, in contrast to, I think, a lot of the conversation about diversity in tech uh, that that we hear is is not just. Looking for inclusion, you know, there, the experience that led to the development of Zebra's Unite was one uh, that came out of a recognition that um, the reason why uh, our tech uh, communities are often more um, uh, kind of homogenous uh, than and 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 often. At, not inclusive than we might like is not just because people forgot to include certain um, others, but uh, rather that the models are designed in ways that perpetuate that kind of pattern. And that if we want to have uh, a startup culture that is more inclusive and that does really uh, uh, capture and harness more of the creativity in our communities, particularly marginalized communities, um, that we need to rethink some of our, our models uh, that we that it's not just enough to hire more people of a certain uh, sort, but to rethink how our models are set up, how uh, we do business, how we build culture. Um, now, this is you know an interesting conversation to be having in Boulder, in particular. Um, you know, for instance, if you read um, Brad Feld's um, uh, book, Startup Communities, which is you know, in many ways, a kind of testament to the successes of the Boulder startup community, very real successes. Um, Feld writes, Boulder is an incredibly inclusive community. Um, you know, w- when I read that, uh, uh, and I read it over and over with my students, you know, it's it's an interesting statement. On the one hand, there's a sense in which it's true. And then there's another um, side in which it really isn't very true at all. And, uh, and many of us have had experiences and seen um, evidence of ways in which uh, uh, the Boulder startup communities really fallen short in that respect and in ways that you know, reflect you know, broader patterns beyond. Um, so you know this conversation is going to uh, explore um, what we can do to create more inclusive um, uh, approaches to technology. We'll hear from, from three speakers who are doing just that in their everyday work. Um, and this is uh, uh, part of a series uh, that's being orchestrated by CU Boulder. So two of the three speakers um, are coming from CU. Um, and 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 so we'll hear from the work that they're doing there. But um, uh, after that, we'll have an open discussion. Uh, we'll hear from each of them about 10 minutes, and and then um, we want to hear from you about um, your experiences of inclusivity in Boulder, or uh, I know there are some people uh, uh, from beyond Boulder here, uh, and, and we'll just have an open conversation uh, about some of these topics. To get us started, I'm really pleased to introduce uh, Shimika Goddard. She's a you know, longtime friend and collaborator um, from before both of us moved to, to Colorado. Uh, she's now an information science PhD student at CU Boulder, and she's gonna speak about uh, uh, the frame and, and work she's been doing around techno-womanism.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to share about techno-womanism, uh, using the wisdom of Black women to build an inclusive and diverse culture for your organization. So I'm Shamika Goddard, as it uh, it was mentioned by Nathan. I am a doctoral student uh, in the Information Sciences Department, and I'm studying technology, ethics, and social justice issues. And the ethics in that uh, three-pronged approach is techno-womanism. I'm also building a business as a tech chaplain, so I'm interested in this conversation from both the perspective of uh, someone who's interested in the research side, but then also someone who's developing their own culture uh, as a business owner as well. So when you think of startup culture, what might come to mind is the show Silicon Valley. Uh, this show did a good job of, of poking fun at a lot of the companies that exist in Silicon Valley, but not every startup is there and not every tech company is there. And not every tech company looks like this. Uh, diversity is still an issue in a lot of tech companies and, and startup cultures, but there, there are more folks coming to the table. Uh, the question I really have is what happens when they get there? Our first quote for today is from Reverend Dr. Emily M. Towns. She says, joy dares us to live a deep spirit and spirituality. Joy dares us to live justice. Joy takes us out of the folds of the old wounds that make all of us perform unnatural acts of transsexism, sexism, and heterosexism. Joy means creating communities that are bodies of hope and righteousness that spit in the face of the cultural production of evil. It's a heck of a lot better than don't do evil, I would say. Uh, And there's a lot more of that sentiment uh, to come. So what are we talking about here today? I want to guide us today through a conversation that does the following. Define some terms that we'll be working with. Explore how not to build a culture in your startup. And then discuss how to use technowomanism for your startup culture. And this will be the perspective, the lens, and approach that we will use in our conversation today. So first, definitions. We have a few definitions that we will, uh, we will discuss here today, including womanism, techno-womanism, culture, business culture, and then startup culture. So first, womanism, or the term specifically, womanist. It was coined by Alice Walker. Uh, you may know her as the author of The Color Purple. When she defined this term, she did so in her 1983 publication, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, A Womanist Prose. It's a four-part definition which I've consolidated into its main components here for us today. The first part of the definition says that a womanist is a black feminist or feminist of color. The second part of the definition says that a womanist is committed to survival and wholeness of entire people. A womanist is also not a separatist except occasionally for health. Third, a womanist loves many things, including the moon, roundness, the struggle, herself, and loves all of those things regardless. And finally, this uh, fourth part of the definition is a quote specifically from the definition, and you may have heard this uh, before. Womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. So using that definition, I came up with the concept of techno-womanism uh, when I was a seminarian back at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. I wanted to take the wisdom of Black women in womanism and apply it to uh, the social justice issues and other issues that were occurring in and around the digital space and technologies. So I define womanism as an interdisciplinary womanist theoretical approach to analyzing, understanding and explaining the intersectional nature of the human experience within and outside of the digital space, as well as in and around technology. So it's interdisciplinary, it's intersectional, and it has to do with the digital space and technology, all founded on womanism as an ethic. Other things we want to define this morning include culture and business culture. So essentially, culture is the accepted norms and values as well as traditional behaviors of a group, whereas business culture uh, uses those concepts to define the ethics, etiquette, behavior, and more of a business The influences also include the organization's values, vision, working style, beliefs, and even habits. There we go, and then we have startup culture. So startup culture you might think of as a fast-paced, agile, iterative environment with a scrappy team of talented people looking, of course, to change the world. So now that we know what our terms are, let's talk about what not to do, how startup culture is currently failing. When you think of startup culture, what comes to mind? You might think of the the image here with pizza and foosball. Uh, You might think of cultures that have an emphasis on cool and fun and uh, not necessarily an emphasis on the things that really matter to employees. Like the realities of working in startups for particular people, such as uh, women, non-binary folks, transgender folks, minoritized groups, and others. So when you think of those aspects of your startup culture and how folks may be struggling in your environment, foosball and pizza aren't necessarily going to be the solution. Audrey Lord says, there's always someone asking you to underline one piece of yourself, whether it's black, women, mother, dyke, teacher, etc., because that's the piece they need to key into. They want to dismiss everything else. So when you come to a startup culture as a person, Um, some may say, bring your whole self to work. But when you try to do that, um, it's not always honored or valued. There may not be space there for it, or you may bear the burden of having to create that space yourself. And then how do you get buy-in from other people? I've spoken with uh, other people who have worked in tech companies, who have worked in startup companies. And even if the tech company has um, opportunities for you to engage with other women in the group or other minoritized groups, Groups within the organization, that time that you use to spend with those individuals uh, together is not necessarily, as I said, valued. Uh, You're not going to see uh, people who look like you uh, that get higher up in the organization. And as I said before, if you're bringing people to the table, how do you keep them there? How do you get them to the head of the table? And when people are trying to engage in various aspects of their wholeness on the job, but it's not being honored and valued, but instead it's more of a meritocracy and thinking about what your performance and your skills are, uh, then that devalues uh, the various aspects of that person that they're trying to bring to work. So uh, it makes it a lot more difficult for them to make the decision to spend time at that women's lunch or to attend uh, a minoritized groups offerings during the work day or so. So then let's think about how to do what to do. Choosing a Different Way for Cultivating Diverse and Inclusive Startup Cultures. So this is a particularly interesting quote from Dr. Safiya Noble. It's a little long, but I thought it was important because of the way that she she describes Silicon Valley and its implications for the rest of us. She says, this is what I'm saying. This is one of the reasons why you don't see diversity in Silicon Valley. You don't see old people. I dare you to show me a person in Silicon Valley in a major tech company who's like 50 pounds or more overweight. I mean, it's like you got to be a marathon runner or something. I don't even know because there's a certain profile. Maybe you have to live on soil it. I don't know. There's like a way of being in the world that's like hyper optimized in every way. And that optimization is for young people. It's for young white and Asian people. It's for men. It's for people who are really fit, for people who went to good schools, you know, and quotey figures, whatever that means. So, you know, if that's what we're optimizing for, because that is who we think are the most valuable people in our society. And that's the technocracy who should make the decisions for all the rest of us. It's a really narrow window. You can't judge the rest of the world on that. It's like there's a narrow window of what is good in the world. And that framework doesn't allow for the breadth of our humanity. So if you want to guide your own culture with techno womanism, I, encourage you to look at how the definition of womanism applied to uh, the digital space and around technologies and in your context could make a difference. So for example, in the environment, celebrate what people love, like that third part of the definition, uh, including their passion for social justice, uh, which involves committing yourself to the survival of everyone. Uh, Dissolve clicks and learn how to cross pollinate teams so that people aren't siloed and they can come together, not just to work together, but to grow together and be together. Uh, And then, pardon me, in terms of people themselves, it's so important for that wholeness to show up in your workplace uh, and the survival for everyone, uh, not just a select few who get to make it to the top. Uh, And there's also separating for health. So again, if if you don't already have opportunities for people to connect and congregate and celebrate the various aspects of who they are in your organization and allow people to, Separated into those groups for health for particular reasons and then come back to the group refreshed, renewed, reinvigorated, uh, then that's something that you may want to consider. Value and honor that time as well and, that, and any activities that do grow people beyond just their skills. So I could say tons more about this topic, but I'll stop here and leave the rest for our discussion later. But I do thank you for your time and look forward to hearing from the rest of our panelists.
0: You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. Uh, We're listening to a a special conversation at Boulder Startup Week this month of May. Uh, It's virtual, of course. We're doing it over Zoom uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, You just heard from Shamika Goddard. She's an information science PhD student at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, Stick with us and we'll be right back. Listener members have made it possible for KGNU to expand coverage of COVID 19 to include the launch of our new Spanish language news service on news.kgnu.org. Check it out and tell your friends. Go to news.kgnu.org. Los miembros escuchantes han posibilitado que KGNU expanda la cobertura del coronavirus para incluir el lanzamiento de nuestro nuevo servicio de noticias en español en news.kgnu.org. Escúchelo y cuénteles a sus amigos. Vaya a news.kgnu.org. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're talking about what makes tech inclusive. And to do that, we're hearing a, a panel uh, at Boulder Startup Week that took place this month, this May. Uh, and we just heard from Shamika Goddard about techno-womanism. Now we're going to turn to Corey Cohn, who's an entrepreneur here in Boulder, co-founder of Dojo4.
2: So as Nathan said, I am presenting today on um, what I've learned through my business. I am a co-founder of Dojo4, a small tech startup here in Boulder, Colorado. We converted to being a cooperative a few years ago. I think it's now three years ago. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I was one of the original owners, and then we diversified our ownership. It was about, yeah, three years ago, I had been in business with one other person, my original business partner, Aira Howard, for about eight years, and we were seeing that, um, you can see, for those of you who can see this photo from the day that we tweeted that we became a cooperative that we are, in terms of visual identities, not a very diverse group at all. So, um, mostly men, um, all white, um, all able-bodied, uh, physically abled, um, all middle class, um, not actually from, um, our, our backgrounds actually are fairly diverse, but that's not visually apparent at all. Um, But we also had had, had decided to stay quite small. We had gone through lots of ups and downs. And so we had made this decision at some point that we wanted to stay small, and yet we also wanted to be much more diverse than we were. And one way that we knew that we could approach that was from the perspective of um, organizational structure diversity. And so in that way, we opened up our ownership. We had to be a little bit more of a mature organization than we had been at the beginning for anyone to want to join us in ownership. And so it took a number of years to get there. And then after about eight years, we opened it up to, well, we did a whole process, a collaborative process to see how, um, how people might want to participate as owners in this business. and everyone wanted to at that point. So, um, you know, one day there was just me and one other person as owners. And then the next day everything changed and here we are and we're all owners. Now what that actually means in our case is not all of a sudden, um, there's lots of different ways of having this kind of diversification in, Um, organizational structure. In our case, no one actually wanted to manage the business just because they're owners. So the original business owners, Aaron, I continued to manage the business, but the highest level, so that meant that everyday decisions, people didn't have to necessarily be involved in like, let's say a holacracy process or something like that. But the biggest, most engaging, most meaningful decisions are what every owner engages in. Um, this diversification has had, we hope that it would have business advantages, and it has had business advantages that I think are somewhat similar to more identity-based diversification or inclusion. Um, so for instance we were one of the things that we were hoping would be an advantage and i would say most of these really have have um shown up to be advantages in our business is growth so we in our case we did not want to grow in terms of size but we wanted to become ever more sort of established and um you know not having to worry every month about what's in the bank account so uh we realized that we you know me and my business partner in our kind of very small little two-person group that there wasn't going to be a lot of innovation there and so by opening up and including more owners we were hoping that that would then lead to a sense of more growth and again i i see a lot of parallels here having been in more um identity diverse organizations and seen having seen the advantages that are there, and I'm talking here particularly about business advantages, I see a lot of parallels there. Another one is flow. Um, when there's just these you know, few owners, few decision makers, things tend to get quite bottlenecked. And again, that can be business decisions, that can also be uh, experience decisions or cultural decisions. And so just by having this kind of sense of uh, greater um, input and participation. We were hoping to get through those leverage points that then get all bottled net, bottlenecked and open that up a bit. And we found that to be quite true at this point after three years in as well. The other one is potential. So when you when you open up an organization to people that aren't usually participating in a certain way. Um, hopefully there's, there's a lot of good that could come out of that in ways that we don't even know. So uh, on the one hand, our having more owners means that we're diversifying the business risk, and that's something that people that wanted to participate as, as member owners had to take on. But on the other hand, it also increases the potential upside for everyone. And um, Aira and I had been, you know, at the end of before we, cooperatized we had already been sharing our upside just at the end of the year we would just take what was in the bank account and divide it amongst the people we had been working with but that's sort of like a little you know obviously quite top down here we're doling out your bonuses kind of thing and in this way we really wanted we our business had been built by people that we've been working with for almost 10 years and it felt um Uh, very appropriate to have upside be shared by everyone. Uh, The other one that was very meaningful to me and continues to be meaningful to me is longevity and replicability. So um, having an organization, especially I would say a small organization, but I think any organization, depending on, on the organizational culture, it gets really like a cult of personality dependent on particular leaders, particular owners of that business. And uh, I really wanted to have this business, have it's. it's been a, a positive organization in the community and I wanted it to continue whether or not I was there or my business partner A was there. And so diversifying our ownership as a cooperative seemed like a good way of doing that. And then the last one that I'd say I see reflected still every day is the idea of community leadership. So Modeling a sense of here, yes, like Nathan was saying, here we are in Boulder. And I would say, um, what you know, this idea that the Boulder startup community is inclusive takes a really specific lens to see that because <laughs> <laughs> I would say generally it's pretty hard to describe it as inclusive. And I think um, we are seeing examples though of that changing. And we wanted, you know, although not being an identity diverse organization, we wanted to model another way that, we, that um, inclusion could be a prominent part of a business and a prominent part of how we relate to each other in the business, but also within the community. And um, although we're really small, I'd say in some, some particular way, we're kind of mighty in our little Boulder community and that uh, people come to us to say, well, how do you do this? How do you, how do you, do this kind of thing in terms of uh, organizational structure, inclusivity. So that's um, those have been the business advantages. the The part that uh, I did not necessarily expect, and I did not, I didn't totally understand until we had been a cooperative for at least a year or two, and is still this part is really still unfolding. Is an idea of um, including alternate. Capital and so we think of capital primarily as financial and I've been seeing ever more clearly that uh, that's and you know many people have understood this particularly in different cultural communities for you know probably thousands of years but that capital comes in many many different kinds of forms I think in uh, the permaculture um, uh, theories of, of, of growth and, um, and cultivation, that there's eight different kinds of the capital and I've found, um, and there's more you can read about that online in various books. Um, I've identified at least five different kinds of capital that by becoming a cooperative, we've actually enriched our business and our community and um, I would say even kind of like our personal lives and families. Through these kinds of capital. So, I think by becoming a cooperative, we invited a diversity of thinking and a diversity of being that wouldn't necessarily have been supported in a different organizational structure. And because of that, we've actually enriched ourselves in a few ways. So, I'll just go over those quickly. Um, The first one would be social capital. So, in each case, I'm talking about um, having, instead of we're, we still have some hierarchy, and that's what works for our business. It could be different, obviously, in different cooperatives. But although we have hierarchy, we also have every person that we work with is uh, uh, equal percent owner of the business. And what that means in terms of social capital is that means that um, we are, our social capital has been enriched in terms of our connections and influence, both within our business and within the community. The other one is intellectual capital. So we now are including more kinds of wisdom and more kinds of knowledge and a greater willingness to share that intellectual capital and to kind of keep it in the in the business bank account. The Then experiential capital. So that's uh, one way to understand that is day-to-day know-how and that's the part that um, both into, Well, all of these are important for the longevity of the business or the organization. And this one particularly plays out every day. So I find now that there's this great sense of um, everyone pitching in what they've learned. So um, we're not a very identity diverse group, but we are kind of for bolder startups think we're kind of an old group, we're mostly in our 40s and 50s. And so there is a lot of experiential capital there. And we're making good on that by having owner members instead of um, a more traditional structure. And we have spiritual capital, and this is no small thing. And I think often in the startup community, I was really, um, it's so heartening to hear people talk about that aspect, like Shamika included, as well. So heartening to um, have that be acknowledged part of the way we do business, and that in in our case we think of that as presence and sanity. Um, that would be the short way of saying that the last one that I 'll speak to is cultural capital and um, yeah so we're actually quite most of us we're small you know there's only seven members, um, but we come from actually pretty different backgrounds and there's a lot of stories there and a lot of traditions. And they enrich our business so much and they enrich the lives of our clients and um, our neighbors and uh, the everyday life of being in business together. I've written about this a bit if um, anyone's interested. I actually wrote about it in terms of um, valuation of a business and how it's important to include various forms of capital in in valuation when speaking with investors. And if you Google my name, Corey Cohn, and I think eight kinds of capital, uh, this was, there was an article printed in Conscious Company Magazine that you can read there. So um, we had a long process to become uh, organizationally more inclusive, structurally more inclusive. And uh, I wrote about that a bit, and we have all our resources on my company website. And even for those of you listening on the radio, it's an easy to remember URL. It's dojo4.com slash co op, C um, O O P. So I wrote, I documented our whole process of how to convert. Some people might start their organization as a co op, which I would be excited to do maybe in the next uh, phase of my professional life. But in this case, we converted and I documented that process. I'm also, um, please read about it if this is something you're interested in, but also feel free to contact me. I'm happy to talk about any of this stuff anytime. Um, Also, a friend of Nathan and I, and maybe more people on this this Zoom call, um, Jason Weiner was our lawyer, and he very graciously uh, allowed us to open source all the legal paperwork that he collaborated with us on. Uh, to become a cooperative. So that's all online. You can see it again at the URL that I said, dojo4.com slash co-op. And please use it. It's open source. So um, use it for what it's worth. Change it. Make it yours. And then I also listed lots of other resources on how to become a cooperative and yeah, the importance of being uh, structurally more inclusive.
3: Thank you.
0: You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a special uh, conversation here as part of Boulder Startup Week. Uh, This was a conversation that we recorded uh, earlier in May uh, about what makes tech inclusive. We just heard from Corey Cohen of Dojo4, a cooperative tech company here in Boulder. Stick with us and we'll be right back. KGNU, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM, Boulder, Denver, 98.7 FM in Fort Collins, 93.7 FM in Nederland, 99.1 FM in Denver, and online at KGNU.org and afterfm.com. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're doing something special. We're uh, airing a conversation as part of Boulder Startup Week that took place earlier in May about what makes tech inclusive. We've heard from Shamika Goddard about this vision of techno-womanism. And and we just heard from Corey Cohen, a co-founder of Dojo4, a a worker co-op tech company here in Boulder, Colorado. Next, we're going to turn to... Shaz Zamor, who is an instructor at the Atlas Institute at CU Boulder, and she'll talk about uh, the role of storytelling in building uh, an inclusive approach to engineering.
3: All right. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you about um, storytelling. (laughs) Um, So, my name is Shaz Zamor. I am a STEAM Outreach Coordinator and Instructor for the Atlas Institute here at CU Boulder. Um, and I have um, a background in hard sciences. I have a PhD in neuroscience. I consider myself a neuroengineer, someone who develops uh, new tools that helps us explore and augment our sensory and uh, mental processing experiences. Um, And in the process of going through sciences, I got really into science communication and just sort of fell into this path of storytelling and realizing what a place storytelling has, not just for the sciences and engineering, but also for humanity in general. Um, So I'm going to spend this time talking a little bit about storytelling in research and education, but for the most part, I'm just going to be talking about what storytelling is to humans and how it can apply to we start up our businesses, and especially how we develop our technology. So as I said, I have this background in neuroscience and science communication, um, and I'm really interested in how we can change our education strategies by using storytelling. So I am here working on um, a multifaceted project where I use comics to teach uh, middle school students about neuroscience, bioengineering, and biotechnology. And so this is a um, two-part subscription package uh, that has Steam Team, which is the comic, and then the Mod Capsule, which is a hands-on interactive um, educational experiment kit. So storytelling is really important. And in this whole process, I realized how storytelling has played a role in my life. So I am a first-generation American. My parents come from two different islands in the Caribbean. And I grew up living between these different cultures. So I lived between these two cultures within my home. And then I lived between different cultures when I went out to school, interacting with my peers and my, my teachers versus coming home um, and being in my family. Uh, and I realized that I spent most of my life code switching. So changing my words, uh, vocabulary, mannerisms to effectively communicate with people who identify with different cultures. And as I got older, I realized what code switching was Um, And really how there's, we're always dealing with this amalgam of cultures. So storytelling is a really great way that we can bridge these gaps across these cultures. So storytelling is something that is inherently human. Um, It is believed that we've been telling stories from pretty much as far, as long as we could speak, uh, have language. Um, and what I'm showing you here on the screen is a, a cave drawing that is 36,000 years old. And this is our first evidence of storytelling in human history. Uh, this is now found in present day France in the Chavot Cave. And it's uh, an image of uh, rhinoceroses that are, um, I think, running away from an erupting volcano. And so we see this um, evolution. To so now uh, anthropologists are considering storytelling to be critical to human identity and critical to human uh, evolution. When we tell stories, we're really sharing information. Uh, So stories can help disseminate experiential knowledge. This happened to me, this happened to us, this will happen. And it also shares, probably more importantly, meta-knowledge. It gives us an idea of what everybody knows. What is the shared knowledge? What is our base level of understanding that we can then build off of? Um, And in doing uh, in, so t- in so telling stories, uh, we ultimately end up building cohesion, so allowing people to feel connected, to feel uh, have an identity, a shared identity. Um, it promotes altruism, so these uh, behaviors of, of kindness and sacrifice without the expectation of reward over payment. Um, and it also motivates larger communities, it can create larger communities. So before, uh, historically, uh, before there was storytelling, uh, humans would assemble in groups of about 150, and then after storytelling uh, really became present in, um, at least historically, what we can, we can tell, uh, humans started to aggregate and share cultures in the thousands. So it's a really powerful tool to connect people, and it can also be a powerful tool to separate people as well. Um, so as I said, we were talking about how humans can group, to uh, aggregate together in these, these numbers, and so as we're grouping ourselves together, we're effectively creating different cultures. And within those cultures, we'll tell stories differently. Just to illustrate a couple of examples, in Polynesian cultures, they use hula, a form of dance. In Chinese cultures, they'll use shadow puppetry to uh, act out stories and plays. In Arabic cultures, uh, they have a form of spoken word called zahal. And in Car- Caribbean cultures, they'll have a form of sung stories called calypso. And so. This is just demonstrating how movement and speech can vary so wildly across different cultures. And really, when we're, telling, when we're talking about storytelling now in the modern day, we're really talking about education. We're really talking about how we share information, not just to uh, inform other people in sort of our plane of, of intellectual uh, standard, uh, stat- status, but also to educate people uh, so we're all together on the same plane of knowing. So it's really important to kind of understand that people are going to communicate and tell stories differently. So how does this apply to engineering and what is the engineer's story? So if we look at what is projected to happen um, for uh, just across the, in general, across uh, careers, so what's going to happen to fields as they develop from 2018 to 2028? we're gonna see a really big rise in a large number of healthcare-related jobs. So healthcare support occupations, uh, personal care and service occupations, computer and mathematical occupations, um, and healthcare practitioners, just to name a few. And what you'll notice about all of these jobs is that they're inextricably tied to engineering. So as we are seeing this increase in a lot of personal, interpersonal care uh, and care fields, we're also going to see a a different shift in demands on what's going to happen in engineering fields. And with that shift, we're also going to see a shift in people, and we're already seeing that now. Uh, As of 2011, all of the children that were born um, are more, the majority are actually minorities, so we're gonna have to deal with the verbiage at some point. Um, But we also see it in our educational structure, so we're seeing more and more women being awarded Um, degrees in engineering um, and we're looking at a plot here from uh, that looks at 1997, 2006, and 2016 Um, and again we just see this increase in women getting engineering degrees. So this is kind of coupled with how engineering is going to shift um, to accommodate these sort of soft care um, uh, careers as well as a shift in uh, the demographics. And just to kind of hammer that home, we're also going to see obviously a shift in racial uh, um, demographics as well. So currently we see a lot of white people in um, engineering positions, um, but that's going to change especially as the demographics change and especially as job needs change. So engineering is at this point now where we really have to be adaptive, right? So as the population, as the American society is becoming more and more diverse, uh, engineering has to shift with those social trends. So, what we see right now um, is kind of there's some critical problems that engineering is seeking to solve. Uh, primarily, that access to technology varies drastically with socioeconomic status. So, people of low income are probably not going to be experiencing VR or AR. Um, people with high income are more likely to take advantage of these cutting edge technologies. And so, what does that mean? As a startup when you're thinking about who you're going to who's going to support you uh, who's going to buy those first products and things like that has to come into play we also see uh, a lot of racism and sexism in artificial intelligence as we're developing a lot of this machine learning and independent uh unsupervised learning we're also seeing a lot of uh racism and sexism coming through and this is just a manifestation of what we see in Our human behaviors coming through and what we are creating. And the same thing extends to virtual reality where we see uh, sex and gender issues that uh, come up. For example, uh, people who identify as women tend to have smaller pupillary distances, uh, which means that they need to have the settings on their VR closer together, the visual settings. Um, And as a result, people who identify as women uh, experience a higher proportion of VR sickness, so motion sickness, as a result of it not being um, considered to have smaller frames and smaller um, visual um, settings. We also see misrepresentation or lack of representation in data. Probably the most interesting thing is that curly haired people are underrepresented in EEG scans because sensors, we haven't solved the problem of how to get sensors uh, to uh, read through more voluminous hair. And then in a more social way, uh, we look at image filters that are catered to European features. So looking for uh, shapes like noses and mouths uh, will t- tend to cater toward uh, European features. And then when it comes to coloration, again, it will cater to European features. And so we're seeing, as we're developing these new tools, we're seeing that there's a bias toward uh, the people who are making them. Right? If you're making the tools, you're going to make it for the people who are like you. And within this, as we think about what's happening kind of behind the scenes on the back end, what we're actually seeing as a result might be um, exacerbated by cultural dissonance. So cultural dissonance is something that is experienced by participants of multiple cultures. um, And it is explicitly uh, the experience of perceiving cultural roles that conflict with each other. For example, when I was a child uh, growing up in my home, In the Caribbean, um, staying home with your family and spending a lot of time with your family is the cultural norm. And when I went to school among my classmates in America, (laughs) they wanted to spend more time with their friends. And that idea of spending time with your family isn't as strong. And so I experienced this conflict where in one, one setting, I experienced one set of rules that directly conflicted with another set of rules I experienced in another setting. And understandably, this results in feelings of exclusion, confusion, or even dismissal of the new rules. So if you are someone who's coming from culture A, and culture B is telling you to do something opposite, if culture A is something really inherent to you, you might just fully reject what culture B is saying, which might be uh, to a detriment. And so again, as we're seeing more and more engineers and scientists, Uh, become more diverse, we're actually seeing more intersectional identities, meaning that these are people that are inherently multicultural and are more likely to experience this cultural dissonance as they move through workspaces and um, classrooms. And so what I'm showing in this graph here is just the uh, distribution of um, disabilities across uh, different types of demographics, so looking at women and men with disabilities, Um, as well as disabilities across races. And so this is just to highlight that we're not just going to deal with um, how do we, the problem isn't really how do we create um, tools and um, solve problems for a person who identifies as a man versus a person who identifies as a woman. It's going to be how do we create tools for a person who is Black, Jewish, and trans, right? We're going to have to deal with these compounding cultures and learn how to tell stories across all of them. So how can we do that? Um, So first of all, I just kinda wanna take a step back and say that storytelling is crucial to anybody that's dealing with uh, engineering or the sciences. Our work is only as good as the stories that we tell. If you have a good product or if you're doing really good research and you don't have a good story, you have a terrible paper, you have a terrible talk, you don't market it well, you don't have a good product. And so it all comes down to telling the story really well. And part of doing that is realizing how we tell stories and how it can change within American cultures alone. So European-American storytelling tends to be protagonist-centric, and in the terms of engineers, this can be, uh, the protagonist can be you, the producer, it can be the product, or it can be the consumer. Um, And it tends to be hero-focused, very hero-positive, the protagonist is protected, the protagonist never dies, the protagonist almost always prevails. It's this very triumphant kind of storytelling. Non-European American storytelling is quite different, where the protagonist can be sacrificed and interactions, social interactions in particular, tend to be valued or highlighted more than the plights of a protagonist. So kind of having this understanding of how we tell stories within our American culture altogether can improve our ability as engineers to tell stories across these multiple cultures. So how can we change our story The first thing really is to listen and validate. So do the research, listen to Calypso, go watch hula dancing, learn about the history of hula dancing. You can learn about storytelling. There's tons of great Ted talks. I've linked one here. Um, There's really a lot to explore and it's really great to explore how all of these cultures are represented in American culture. And then find the common factor. There's a lot of things that connect us together despite all of the very uh, dramatic changes that happen within our country. For example, most people are gonna be concerned about their safety and health, especially now. Um, And they're gonna be thinking about their family and kids as well. Regardless of culture, these are things that tend to be kind of a human theme and things that you can weigh upon when you're talking about your products, when you're building your companies. And then also be intentional about who you're telling your story to. Um, I say this to my students, that it's totally fine to want to create products for people like you. That's totally natural. It's a very human thing to do. But it's very important that we do so with intentionality, to know that that's what you're doing and not just rely on habit um, mindlessly. And then most importantly, I think, let others tell the story. And this is kind of a two-part thing. Uh, first, when we have um, underrepresented minorities in higher ranking positions, they're allowed to shift the story and shift the narrative a lot more than lower ranking people. And so when we, when we look at companies that do this, uh, we see higher retention rates among uh, underrepresented minorities. And I'll leave you with a quote. I'm going to leave my contact information below. I can be reached at CuriousDrZ.com and you can follow me on Twitter at TheDrZ.com. C-O-C-T-A, but I'll leave you with this one quote that embracing other forms of storytelling is an act of embracing other cultures and therefore an act of embracing humanity itself.
0: You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. You've just been hearing from Shaz Zamor, who's an instructor at the Atlas Institute at CU Boulder, talking about storytelling and engineering and, and inclusivity. And, and this is the conclusion of a conversation that we had earlier this month at Boulder Startup Week, virtually, of course, in the context of the, of the pandemic. Um, and I hope this conversation's been useful. If you're interested in getting more involved and in helping to build not only uh, a you know startup community that invites um, people in more inclusively and tries to um, bring deeper diversity into into uh, startup culture, uh, but also looks to transform some of the features of startup culture that, might be inhibiting that kind of diversity. I I really invite you to look into Zebras Unite, the network whose work has helped kind of frame this conversation. You can find out more at zebrasunite.com and uh, uh, full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a board member of the organization, but long before that I was, I was just a fan um, and someone really trying to learn from the good work that Zebras Unite is doing. And we're partnering uh, with Zebras Unite at the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder Uh, To facilitate a conversation, a series of discussions around this idea of exit to community, which is a a kind of new mythology or or, or story to uh, uh, pick uh, pick up off of what Shaz was talking about uh, for what startups are for. trying to build uh, the tools and the the narratives and the expectations around uh, creating startups really intended to be owned and governed by the communities of people who depend on them. Um, And, you know, we believe uh, that uh, doing that sort of thing, making that sort of option available and normal would not only create better startups, but it would invite um, people into the work of building startups that um, right now might not be interested or don't feel welcome, maybe because they, you know, want to build something for their communities, not just investors. Um, and so it's about, you know, creating a, um, a startup environment that is really community oriented from the beginning. Uh, you can find out more about that work at, at our website at colorado.edu lab slash I'm Nathan Schneider, a Professor of Media Studies at CU Boulder. And Looks Like New is a production of our Media Enterprise Design Lab. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this special um, uh, conversation from Boulder Startup Week. Thanks to the team at Boulder Startup Week for helping to support the event. Um, and I hope you're doing well. I hope you're uh, taking care of yourself and the people around you, and and thinking about how to broaden that circle of concern in a moment where we all need each other more than ever. Thank you so much for listening.